Welcome to the Gamer's Tavern, episode 15. Um, regardless of what Ross is going to say in a moment. Uh, you see, there was a slight problem with the audio on this episode. Um, this episode was supposed to feature guests Daryl Hardy and Colin McComb. But there was an issue with Daryl's audio, and I wanted to get the fresh copy before I released it to you because I want to always give you guys the highest quality audio that we can. And congratulations, Daryl, on the birth of your child today. And I could not be the asshole who said, Hey, I know you're at the hospital and you're waiting to get discharged with your newborn child that was just born a few hours ago. But hey, if you happen to find a Wi-Fi signal, can you send me about a gig's worth of audio from three weeks ago? Yeah, um, I actually did send that email i was a little bit more polite than that though um but needless to say we had to shuffle around some of the episodes we had pre-recorded so this episode instead of being the one with daryl hardy and colin mccomb is actually with guest chris avalon who you may know from several video games that are kind of a big deal um let's see uh knights of the old republic 2 um planescape torment Fallout New Vegas, uh, the upcoming Tides of Numenera. Uh, those are just a couple of the games he's had a hand in. And, of course, he's also got a start in tabletop gaming. And we, especially Ross, could not think of a better guest for an episode covering our topic today, Villains. Because he, this man has created some of the best in the business. So, even... Though we spend a lot of time talking about video games and we're kind of a tabletop gaming podcast, there is still a lot to learn for your home role-playing game. Or, if you're a video game fan, just sit back and take in the anecdotes. Uh, either way, go grab a drink from the bar and take a seat at the table in the corner. I'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Have you been looking for a dark fantasy RPG setting? Are you interested in seeing a new take on the action horror genre? Then you should check out Accursed. Accursed is a setting for the Savage Worlds RPG created by me, Ross Watson, and my good friends Jason Marker and John Dunn. It is a world where the heroes are monsters who fight for redemption against the witches who have conquered their land. To find out more about Accursed, search for Accursed on DriveThroughRPG.com. Accursed is now on sale there and in many other fine retailers for gaming PDFs. Thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy Accursed. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Gamers Tavern podcast. I'm your host, Ross Watson. And I'm Daryl Mott Jr. And tonight we have with us one of my favorite game designers, Chris wow. Avalone. Hey guys. Hey Ross. Hey Daryl. Hey everybody. Welcome to the show, Chris. It's a real pleasure to have you join us on the Gamers Tavern. Well, hey, I appreciate you guys uh, asking. I'm really flattered to be here. Well, one thing we ask all of our guests is to kind of tell our listeners a little bit uh -oh. about who you are, where they may know <laughs> you from. And the, we like to phrase this as, what is your gaming character sheet? 
my gaming character sheet as well. Yeah. Wow, that's a tall order. Okay, so uh, I spent the last 19 years doing computer role-playing games, and then before that I was doing pen and paper role-playing games. The most recent big title that I worked on that people may have heard about is uh, Fallout New Vegas, and I did a lot of role-playing games for Interplay Entertainment and their Black Isle division, and then uh, I went on to be one of the co-founders of City Entertainment, and they did... Again, like Fallout New Vegas, uh, Star Wars Knights of the Republic 2, uh, Alpha Protocol, Neverwinter Nights 2, just a whole bunch of titles for them as well. And we have South Park and Stick of Truth coming out, and we're also doing the Kickstarter project Pillars of Eternity. And if anyone uh, out in the audience has backed that, I we are very, very grateful for your support. Thank you very much. And my gaming character sheet. Um, so uh, it depends on the GM, I've discovered. But <laughs> if I actually had an ideal GM, uh, I would have a very, this is going to sound kind of odd, a very role-playing based character sheet. Like I would have a lot of speech skills, uh, a number of extraneous skills that don't really add anything to combat. Things like, uh, you know, I, my character might have a point or two and being able to speak Pig Latin or they might have uh, certain quirks that don't necessarily mesh with the world. And I've been told by GMs before that when they've received my character sheet, that my character just simply will not survive in their campaign. <laughs> like, liter literally, I, I, I got that. Like, I, I made one character called, uh, called Sid the Id, and all he did was he was this very mild-mannered accountant who, <laughs> who whenever he heard someone say a particular profession like, hey, Sid, you know, you could probably be the world's greatest detective. And then suddenly, telepathically, he could start amassing information that would make him like that. But basically, like, his his core character was actually very, very weak in terms of physical abilities. And then the GM was just like, look, Chris, it's an interesting concept. I like, I like where you're trying to go with this, but the first guy with a laser rifle who shows up, it's going to murder your character. So I'm like, all right, well, that's kind of disappointing. So, um, so in the, uh, the D and D campaign I'm in right now, I'm, I'm playing a, uh, a pretty basic fighter. And then, uh, for Didn't the Numenera campaign, I'm, I almost got killed. Oh, oh, so you were following that. Okay, so yes. I <laughs> I got attacked by a that stupid be here creature, which <laughs> does the grapple attack and then can swallow you whole, both of which happened to me. So I got grappled and my character's in like, you know, a strong man for a fighter, I you know, ironically enough, because I had to role play. Um and then so I'm sitting there trying to get out of its grasp because it's got so many fucking like claws and I can't. Like it's impossible. So then it swallows me to add insult to injury. So I'm going down its gullet trying to stab my way out with my stupid dagger. And then all my and then all my, my pals finally come to rescue me and they actually saved the day. I think they, they saved it by putting the damn thing to sleep and then hauling me out of its gizzard. You and it, it's, it's embarrassing. Like did it's it, like did it it's, smell it's like, better on the inside. I, you know, actually actually it probably did. <laughs> and it's it's one of those stories where like, you know, as you almost wish there weren't any witnesses because then you could rewrite it. But no, everyone was there and they, they watched me and many jokes were had. But yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It was not, it was not my, my finest hour. You know, Chris, that's one of the best answers we've ever gotten to that question. <laughs> I, am proud, I am both proud and ashamed to give it to you. Go ahead, Daryl. I was going to say, I got to ask the question because I just got done ep editing our episode 14, which is an edition wars episode. What edition were you playing? Of D &D. Oh, we were playing uh, 3.5. Okay. And oddly enough, we're also playing in Greyhawk. 
Ooh. which was kind of a shocker to me because I, I didn't realize that people actually, I didn't realize a lot of people still gamed in Greyhawk. And that's, that's kind of what I grew up with, with like Temple of Elemental Evil and uh, Cult of the Reptile God. So when I heard that, I was kind of excited about it too. Because usually I'm used to Forgotten Realms campaigns or, um, or uh, basically just Numenera. Yeah, you know, Greyhawk has its own particular feel, which is really cool. And uh, Yeah, I agree. I think, that's, I think it's exciting you're playing in Greyhawk. Uh, but actually, number two, I was going to say, you kind of um, actually skipped ahead to the next part, which is our what is what have you been playing lately uh, section. So maybe we can, I mean, I, have you been playing anything else lately, Chris, well, since, yeah, since we're on the subject? I have been playing the hell out of the Wasteland 2 beta. Oh, yeah. Uh, so bad now, I think they just released a, a new update yesterday, I believe. So I was actually going to go through the opening of the game and then make all the exact opposite choices because a lot of the locations change depending on uh, which one you go to help first. And also, there was a lot of things that I did both <laughs> purposely, cruelly, and inadvertently cruelly that now armed with that knowledge, I want to go back and do things a little nicer a little differently so i'm gonna do a run of that but uh yeah i was playing that i also have been uh, checking out uh, gone home and then uh, i actually started playing spec ops the line because uh i heard the storyline they yeah. done that was pretty solid and kind I've, of interesting and i want to make sure i experience it i've heard some really interesting interesting things about that game as well but one last question about what you've been playing just because I, uh, as I've said, I've been following you on Facebook. I'm a little bit like a Chris Avalon stalker, I guess you could say. Oh, that's um, so that's so comforting and reassuring to hear. <laughs> I, I know, I know. As I go to lock the doors. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I had a question about. I know you did a playthrough of Arcanum not so long ago. I have been playing Arcanum. I am not done with it yet. Oh, uh, interesting. I have I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, I will freely admit that. I feel that the interface is both beautiful and also equally terrifying to match its beauty. I don't think it's a very well laid out interface, nor is it very intuitive, but it is very pretty to look at. And I'm going to get burned at the stake for this, but just like the Fallout interface, I also thought that the interface for uh, the first Fallouts was were not, were not very good interfaces uh, for a game, even though they looked really cool. But... To, on the plus side, I think the Arcanum world is pretty fucking cool. Uh, yeah. I really enjoy the characters. The ambience is really cool. I like the reactivity, even if the reactivity sometimes makes me scratch my head because sometimes there's, there's, there's no conceivable way an NPC could know something that they do uh, unless I'm completely missing something. So uh, sometimes I Toronto. I thought Toronto was very well designed. I'm looking forward to reaching there, and I'm oh, you haven't been to Toronto yet. Oh, oh okay. I, no, I haven't. Uh, All right. I haven't gone past that first town yet because, oh, okay. I, so, you know, horribly scarred by the experience. I'm just kidding. I actually, <laughs> uh, I actually first met up with that uh, that drunken ogre who's really making my life a lot better. The companion. I'm sorry. Yeah. Actually, the half ogre. He is great. Thank God he showed up. He packs a wall up, and he's not nearly as. Uh, snide and jerky as Virgil tends to be sometimes. Yeah, yeah, Virgil, well, you know, just like all characters, they go through an evolution. But um so I have one quite one last question about Arcanum. Dun dun dun. Magic or tech? Oh magic. Sweet. Uh and uh, unfortunately the reason for that is uh I well, that's not the reason, but I, I normally I, I gravitate towards magic because I just find it, you know, it's more fantastical, blah, it's a terrible answer. But um 
I almost hesitated in Arcanum before doing that because I heard that magic, especially the harm spell, is pretty unbalanced. And you could actually go through the game a lot easier if you choose magic. So that kind of made me go, eh. But, uh, but at the same time, like, tech seemed to have so much junk associated with it that it seemed like kind of a management uh, frustration. Yeah, well, like, it, you know, I'll just go towards magic anyway and just, you know, try not, try not to rely on the harm spell if I don't have to. Well, we, we could probably spend a whole episode on Arcanum. Um, I'm a huge fan of it. I've played it numerous times so but I, you know, I tell you what actually if you guys are ever up for it uh after i finish my playthrough i would love to talk to you guys for a session about it and then we could just we could just kick around arcanum idea arcanum thoughts and that would be a, a fun thing if you guys would be up for it i can't see how we could possibly turn that down daryl <laughs> sounds good to me okay Done. Well, let, let's uh let's get to the meat of the episodes we, we need to move ahead so we're going to talk about what we've been playing uh, with Daryl and then myself. So, Daryl, what have you been playing lately? Uh, we're recording this uh, January 9th, so I just got back from Space City Con this past weekend. I got to play a lot of games. I actually got to play Cards Against Humanity with uh, Miltos, and I'm going to try to pronounce his last name, but he is the guy who played uh, Serial Pharrell on Game of Thrones. I what do we say to... to the god of death? I actually have that as a black card in my game autographed by him now. <laughs> Not today. I don't have that one. Uh, okay, but that's his, cool that uh, you got to play a game with him. Yep, I also got to play a Zombie Side, which is a what originally was a Kickstarter game by a Cool Mini or Not, which I think still holds the record for the most amount of money for any tabletop game on Kickstarter. It got like 2.4 million, I think. Holy sh! Wow. Yeah, yeah. It, it's huge. And it's actually, it's actually a really, really cool game. It's the closest I have seen to something, because a lot of them are trying to be more like B-movies. This is really trying to be more like that Romero survival thing along the lines of, like, Zombies was. But this one does it with that sort of visual style that uh, Last Night on Earth does. So it's a lot of hey, fun. Is is Zombies the one game where you lay down the tiles in yes. a little plastic zombie? Okay, That's I love one. that game. Yeah, Zom uh, this is basically plays a little bit like that. There's different scenarios, and some of them actually have, like, a game master because there's secrets. Like, you have to unlock this door to get to this key, and then you have to get to take that key to unlock the door to the shelter so you can get to the shelter to escape the zombies. Oh, very cool. That, that's the scenario I saw. And there's a lot of tactics involved, but it's also really easy to pick up on, and it, it feels a lot more like, Seriously, if they could have got the license, this could have been the Left for Dead board game. That's how that cool this thing is. Pretty cool. Yeah. My friend Michael Serbark has actually done up like a whole hero system version of Left for Dead that uh, he runs at conventions. So, uh, quick shout out to Mike on that <laughs> one. But yeah, that's really cool, Daryl. Yeah. I, I actually had a question for you guys. If, if you guys are uh, big Cards of Humanity fans, which I, I assume you are, do any of you know a way to actually uh, professionally get cards made for that game? Because I, 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 there are so many They're perfect ways those would make like great Christmas gifts and birthday gifts. They are to actually for sale give. officially only on one place, and that's Amazon.com. Uh, the core set's $25, and each of the four expansions is $10 each. I think Chris wants to get if, some custom ones. If thing. you're wanting to get custom ones printed, I, w I would actually suggest emailing the guys behind Cards Against Humanity. Uh, they're all really, really cool guys, and they actually just finished wrapping really? up their... I, hmm? 
I would be so afraid to. They seem like they 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 might they may might mock me or be like super sarcastic. No, they are. Like, oh. They are the nicest, coolest people on the planet. <laughs> okay. I, I, I've, right. de- I've dealt with them before. I, I randomly tweeted to them, "Hey guys, I could since I'm going to a lot of cons, I could really use more blank cards. You should guys should like sell a pack of them." Got a direct message from them saying, uh, "Hey, do you want some? We got a bunch laying around the place. Mailed them to me, no charge." That like a, is like cool. a stack of about two, three That's dozen cool. of them. So. Yeah, these guys are really cool. Uh, I would suggest talking to them, or if you know anyone who's working in tabletop that just may have gotten a deck of cards printed as an accessory for their game, possibly. Anyone? Bueller? Uh, are you talking to me? Yeah, you uh, no. the uh, Accursed Play card deck. Oh, well, those are poker cards, though. It's not the same thing. But it's similar printing. It's print-on-demand, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's print-on-demand through Drive-Thru RPG, so... Okay, well... Uh, speaking of Accursed... Uh, <laughs> I was, dun, dun, dun. This, this is probably a great chance for me to mention that uh, Chris Avalon has agreed to uh, write a source book for uh, Accursed as Ooh. he's one of our stretch goals on the Kickstarter. And since we reached our goal for that, he's actually going to be writing a really impressive uh, source book on uh, Hebron, if that's correct, right? Is that the one you picked? That, that is absolutely correct. And yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doing the source book with my, uh, with my partner in crime, uh, George Zeitz, who I've worked with on many projects in the past. And uh, we both went through the Accursed source book, uh, broke it down, and I think we both agreed on the great nation combination of just doing Hebron and Hyphrates and oh, yeah. uh, mummies and golems. Yep, that <laughs> sounds like it's going to be fun. It's actually kind of interesting because uh, usually uh, George prefers to uh, do, for some reason, like he does a lot of design work and like enjoys doing golems. So I feel a little bit weird this time actually tack- tackling like the more golemy nation. So we'll see how that all turns out. Well, it's, it's going to be cool because the best way I can describe Hebron is uh, Judea plus Hollywood Sparta. Yeah, so, <laughs> it's going to be awesome. I, I can't wait to do it. So anyway, this, so you heard it, here, heard it here first. This is what's happening with Chris Avalon for writing for Accursed. And what I've been playing lately, I've also, of course, been running Accursed uh, on a weekly basis. And my friends are still continuing to run Marvel superheroes for us as a side game, which is really oh fun. And I got to do a quick shout out to my friends uh, uh, Matt Steen and Nate Barlow because they gave me this great idea that I, I stole from them completely, even stole the name. But they said, you know, what's really fun is if you're playing one of those side games and, and you just kind of want to uh, have a good time with, uh, shall we say, a more action-oriented uh, style. They said, name your character like he's in one of the Expendables movies. <laughs> so my character, and again, this is stolen from my friends, but uh, my character for the Marvel Superheroes game is Marriott Sweets. And he speaks in the third person, so he says, Marriott Sweets thinks this is a good idea. <laughs> and I, it's, can't, I can't wait till he meets Elton Honors. Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> or Star Wars Preferred. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's been it's been a lot of fun with that, and uh, my good friend Mark Carroll is actually gearing up to run Torg. Possibly, uh, we are discussing it, uh, and I'm hoping we can get about that. I, I hope we can get a Torg game off the ground because I would love to play my uh, Rocket Ranger again. So uh, that's that's what I've been playing, and so we should probably tell the listeners what this episode is actually all about. And this episode is all about villains. See. As I said, I'm kind of a Chris Avalon stalker, and one of the things I think Chris does better than almost anyone else is he comes up with some really interesting and unique villains for his games. And I thought that would be something our listeners would want to know about is what makes a villain a villain and how you know how you, you create those real memorable antagonists for your game. 
And, you know, Daryl, of course, uh, he, he threw in uh, some of his two cents, which is, you know, like, what makes a villain more than an antagonist, right? I mean, what, how, how, do, you, how do you separate those two things? So maybe that's the first thing we should dive into on villains. Uh, Chris, what, what do you think about that, that term, villain, as opposed to antagonist? Uh, that's a really good uh, question. Um, you know, I'm a little bit stumped because a lot of the more recent work has been just uh, designing uh, people that are more friendly towards the player. However, I guess that does transition into uh, answering your question because when we were doing the uh, the first iteration of uh, Fallout 3 uh, back at Interplay... Um, Van Buren. Right. We actually had that as the sort of one of the questions about the title because the quote-unquote villains weren't really villains. They were just simply another group of people that had been thrust in the same circumstances you were, and they weren't out to uh, necessarily hurt. They were more like rivals to what was going on in the situation. And so when they were going through the environment, they were acting as antagonists because they would do things in other areas that would cause ripple effects for you that could be dangerous or, you know, alternately, alternately positive, but ultimately they were working at cross purposes with you, even if they didn't necessarily mean, uh, mean you specifically any harm. So, uh, for a villain, I, I'd assume that one way you want to break it down is they would, uh, embody some sort of, uh, sin or vice or flaw and uh, use that in a, I guess, I suppose, a hateful manner <laughs> um, or a uh, I guess that that's probably what what, what jumps to mind. The uh, when I was actually doing enemy source books uh, way back when for the hero system. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, there was actually a, a difference in some of the the classifications of villain versus antagonist, because alternately, usually some of the antagonists we design were ones that would create a situation that would be dangerous but they didn't necessarily ca care about hurting someone it was just a side effect of what they were doing like we had a um antagonist called uh called ashtray art oh yes this and is this is the guy who was in love with fire yeah he he, he literally kind of like a proto ignis right he he just thought that fire was a living breathing creature that was deserving of you know romance and and to be, you know, uh, given her, you know, tributes and gifts, and which is really as, kind of a heroic. I mean, that's that's a that's a, a that's a that's a thing we can all get behind. Sympathetic idea that you know, love. You know, he's he's really just a champion of love. Yeah, and uh, you know, I had been surrounded by so many art students in college that were, you know, so you know, embracing this high ideal that I thought if you combine that with uh, with pyromania. <laughs> you could you could you could have a pretty interesting character so he was uh he was one that was a lot of fun to design and then we had another character another antagonist who literally uh she was just so boring that oh, people that people Jane. like right she people absolutely would not register her like telepathically she had the ability to shut them out and they would just forget that she was there so everything she did was just try to attract attention so people would notice her and of course that created all sorts of unpleasant repercussions oh her desperate but, attempts to get noticed i think is one of my i mean if we could talk about underworld enemies uh for anybody out there who's looking for a book full of amazingly cool bad guys for a street-level superhero game. Uh, you should look for this book from 1993. It's 20 years old. Uh, called Underworld Enemies by Chris Avalon. 
Um, and yeah, we were we were just talking about Plain Jane. It was definitely one of my favorite entries in there. Yeah, the uh, it was uh, the first uh, the first big source book I ever got a chance to write, and I think eventually the editors. You know, we're so desperate to to, to publish something, and I'd oh, sent them, uh, I should I'd mention send, this is for the fourth edition Hero System uh, yeah, RPG. Yeah. And uh, I, I'd sent them so much stuff before, and then uh, Monty Cook was my first editor, and he would hit, and he'd given me a lot of rejections, which is kind of ironic because then I ended up going on to work on Planescape, which he was a big part of, and now I'm you know working on a a Numenera game, so it's kind of interesting how the, <laughs> Full the cycle the cycle goes around. And then um, yeah, and then uh, a new uh, a new line opened up with the heroes. I'm like, hey, we're going to do Dark Champions. It'd be a lot like you know if we're doing like a, a Batman focused street level campaign. And they're like, hey, well you know we need we need products for this for this for this line do you want to do one i'm like yep and then i just started writing the character book and uh you know so there were some days where it was really hard to to get something out and then other days it was just a lot of fun but yeah i was really happy with how it turned out forgive me for a second but i i just love underworld enemies it's one of my i i go and point to it and say this is a great book full of of bad guys and villains and i would like to talk about at least a couple more of the really memorable ones from this book uh I want to ask you about The Hanged Man. For me, The Hanged Man is just one of the best, most interesting villains I've seen uh, for that street-level superhero idea. And you could take him to you know almost any genre, but tell us, tell us about The Hanged Man. His character concept was actually uh, birthed by a line that Harlan Ellison used in one of his stories. Ooh. And I believe, if I recall correctly, the line was... Uh, any social change that doesn't harm, I think, over uh, 49 or 50% of the population is worth exploring. Um, and with the hanged man, his concept was he, he, was, uh, he was raised in a, you know, a, a neighborhood and a high school where just violence just thrived. And his opinion was the more guns that I give people and the more weapons and ways to kill themselves, they will eventually wipe each other out. And, of course, there will be casualties along the way. But as long as that 50% mark isn't broken, uh, the overall net gain to society will be more. And he had a way of, like, uh, escalating conflicts and giving discount rates and if – you know, someone held on to a gun too long. He could, you know, detonate it by... There was all sorts of, like, different ways that he was monitoring yeah. the criminal activity in the city. And uh, he was basically just a big weapons supplier in the hopes that all these... Yeah. That's what I loved about him is on the surface, he actually looks like your typical bad guy that Batman would bust because he's, he's an arms dealer and he's selling criminals. So on the, on the very surface, you're like, okay, yeah, he's just another, you know, bad guy for Batman to beat up. But then you read about him and you're like, no, he wants crime off the street. I mean, in fact, I almost think of the Hanging Man as like this is this is another direction Batman could have gone, because he is a he's a brilliant man with a lot of money, and and he just chose to use his skills for the same goal as Batman, but in a different, you know, completely different, uh, you know, ends justify the means type of uh, uh, approach. Exactly. Yeah. And I, that's one of the things I love about him. He's he's just fantastic. <clears throat> um, so another, I, I guess, you know, again, I forgive me, but I. I Studied up on this book before I talked to you. Cause I, I, to I, I'm, some... I'm more than happy to answer. The, uh, this is the first time I ever got a chance to talk about it. So I'm, <laughs> it's like a trip down memory lane for me. <laughs> One of the coolest bad guys in the book. And it's, it's, he's cool because of his concept. I mean, I, I struggled to find a way to actually use him in a game. But his concept is brilliant. 
The guy's name is The Fool. And the concept behind The Fool is that he sees the world as character sheets. He can actually see everyone's character sheet in the game, in the world. And he understands that, you know, heroes and villains, people have that are, are you know, more significant in that world have bigger and more expansive character sheets. And he was driven mad because his whole family, aside from himself, were, you know, their character sheets were pretty, pretty blank. <laughs> and I, that's the thing that just, I was like, oh my God, that's so kind of awesome. Is that's it? Because he's. Meta. He's scrawling, yeah, it's meta, but he's scrawling like, you know, STR, DEX, and CON on the wall of his cell where he's gone completely nuts. And all the, the, the psychiatrists are like, I'm not sure what these mean. <laughs> yeah. But I thought that was just a brilliant, I was like, man, that is a really cool way to drive someone nuts. Yeah, I figured that uh, he could see the uh, the basic uselessness in everyone's lives and how everyone was basically reduced to numbers and exactly how much agency they really had if they had any agency at all. So yeah, I thought that would be a interesting take. I was a little bit I was I was, was kind of worried it was a little bit too meta, but uh, I I still wanted to explore the concept and said, "Ah, what the hell?" <laughs> oh God, he's he's by far one of the neatest you know bad guys I've ever seen as far as concept. Like I struggled to use him because he is kind of he's kind of a freak. He has no hands. Uh, <laughs> so he's no hands. Let's put it that way, just right away. Uh, and that that kind of makes him a little tough to sometimes bring out, unless he's just a henchman, which he technically is. He's a henchman of the the idiot king. But um, suffice to say, uh, again, I think anybody who's interested in looking at some really interesting bad guys for superheroes uh, in a street level game should check this book out because uh, we've just really scratched the surface of uh, some of the great characters that are in here. Um, there's another one that has just a great name, uh, Gunmetal Silk, Cyborg. Yes. She was um, cool as a name. I, I loved her name. Uh, and uh, I, I have to give a nod to uh, to William Gibson because I believe that's the opening description of the city and oh. uh, yeah, and, and Neuromancer. And I was like, man, that's a beautiful combination of an adjective. It is. And, <laughs> and, then, and then I'm, I'm like, hey, it would be really it. cool to have a character named Gunmetal Silk. So, ding. I'm, I'm totally going to steal that from my next Shattering character. <laughs> It's awesome. So yeah, again, um, and I think it's fair to say we can. I, I don't want to leave Daryl out of this conversation too much longer, so I want to uh, probably ought to move on. But um, Daryl, thank come you back so much, Daryl. Thank you here. so I'm much for uh, for sharing some thoughts with us about that book. Because uh, sure, absolutely, my pleasure. Yeah, it is. Again, it's very very cool. So Daryl, um, what about you? What do you what do you have to say about villains and antagonists? To me, it always seems to be a, a question of larger than life. Villains, to me, even low-level, basic villains, just have this sort of quality that takes them beyond just the normal, run-of-the-mill guy. Sure, there's the underbosses and everything else. They are nothing. The villain is always the target, because the villain has as much depth of character as the main characters do. Okay, so you're saying, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying that the difference between a villain and an antagonist is antagonists can be minor, uh, can basically be minor, insignificant problems for the protagonist to overcome but a villain should not be minor or insignificant at least not to me okay no that i think that's a reasonable point i think that's a that's a pretty good way of classifying him it's like it's like like dr doom versus a gun wielding thug yeah they're both antagonists <laughs> but only one of them is a villain for example in uh, dresden files i don't really see nicodemus as a villain because even though he is larger than life and everything else he just he's an antagonist because you kind of like him at the same time there's 
that's another thing. A villain is there to be kind of hated, but you like them at the same time. I'm going to push back a little bit on that. I think there's actually two types of villains, in my opinion. Uh, there's the faceless, well, it doesn't necessarily have to be faceless, but let's call them the implacable force of nature. Okay. Um, good example is the, the Tyranids in Warhammer 40k, the Zerg. You, you can have an implacable force of nature as a villain. And, and, and there, that can be a, a thing that you and your, your group, especially since we're putting this in RPG context, you and your group are struggling to overcome. But there can also be, and I think this is where you were coming from, the sympathetic or uh, relatable villain where you, you may not you know he, he may be thoroughly and irredeemably evil or he may be just slightly misguided but either way we can at least understand what his motive is yeah and that's my thing is a villain doesn't necessarily have to be sympathetic and sometimes that actually you have to work really hard to make a true villain sympathetic in my opinion well and like i said i don't think you i don't think all villains have to be i think you can, i think if you really want you can have the implacable force of nature and Oh yes, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and use another Chris Avalon example. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Chris, one of my favorite examples of bad guys uh, that I go to and, and look at and say, "Wow, these are some really cool bad guys." Um, come from Nice of the Old Republic too, where we have the the uh, tr the the tripod. Uh, what, what what's the word I'm looking for here? The, the triad, the trifecta, <laughs> the triad of of um, Sith lords. Okay, and one of these Sith lords, Darth Nihilus is basically an implacable force of nature. Correct. He doesn't really have a personality to interact with. He doesn't really have a goal beyond consuming Correct. everything. And, and uh, yeah, I, yes, you're absolutely correct. Now, his, his relationship with Visus Mar is actually like the one part that you kind of get the impression he still has some human left in him. But um, and, and I like that there's hints that, you know, he, he definitely used to be more human but in terms of the game and in terms of the story that you you as the protagonist play through kotor too is you know he's really that implacable force of nature you must somehow find a way to defeat he, he it's not there's no reasoning with him he uh that, that is correct he is he's in he is designed to embody the absolutely worst qualities of the dark side of the force like the way the Sith teachings would see Darth Nihilus is a very, very empty path and a dead end because all he becomes is he loses any shred of desire to aspire to some higher teaching. He just becomes hunger. And that in itself is a very empty path for any sort of Sith teaching to follow. And the implication we tried to give was even though the Force technique that Nihilus uses is extremely powerful and extremely effective. It's ultimately something that no Sith wants to use because the cost is too high. The cost is just too high. You lose all your individuality. And, and to an extent, Nihilus was also supposed to represent like all that I hated about, you know, the, the nature of the force and the all encompassing nature of it and then if you apply that to the dark side the whole overall just you know grasping for power grasping for power the gluttony the hunger like that that's just a dead end all in itself so that he he was intended as as yes more of a more of a force of nature as opposed to something more relatable like either like scion or Kreia or even even you know uh, treya to uh uh treya to an extent so Spoilers. it's all <laughs> so actually if you don't mind 
Um, and again, forgive me, Daryl, uh, but I'm jumping in about, I want to talk about Darth Sion a little bit. Now, I think Darth Sion is a really, really cool character. I stole him lock, stock, and barrel for my Shadow, Shadows Angelus um, 2 uh, campaign. I created a, a, a Yakuza guy who was put back together from little pieces. They called him the broken one. And I was like, yeah, this is, I, I love the concept behind Darth Sion. But can you tell us, you know, since we're talking about the differences, it, it, Darth Sion is relatable. He is not a force of nature. You can reason with him. Maybe you could tell us what his deal was and how that worked out in the game to where you could kind of still reach him as a person. Um, I figured that uh, because Nihilus was sort of like the, uh, well, technically the, the, the main adversary in the game, and he was such a force of nature, making him a force of nature is actually a problem because there's nothing to really socialize against or nothing to really affect in your immediate presence. Um, so Darth Sion kind of served that role. Well, he, he had a few purposes, um, but ultimately, you know, Sion was a lot like Darth Maul in the sense that he's a very physical Sith. Like he's there in the moment. He's physically trying to hold himself together through force of will. And he's a direct antagonist that you can have, you know, various battles with as opposed to Nihilus, where once you go in, like it's it's basically all or nothing. How do you fight a hurricane? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But you can fight Darth Sion. Yeah. Correct, yes. And um I think ultimately, however, there's all there were there was some intentions with the the arc with Sion, which didn't really, in my opinion, work out quite so well. But we thought it would be interesting that there was the chance for him to actually have romance feelings for the player character, depending on uh, choices of the game and what you discovered about him. But we weren't able to fully achieve that to the way that I think it was effective. And also the uh, there was one other aspect, which I, I think is worth mentioning. The, the voice casting for it uh, surprised me because the voice director at LucasArts decided to do a take on him that uh, I thought was kind of interesting. And I, I thought, you know, kudos to them. They, they did that for a few characters that worked out really well. Um, and so I think that, that also kind of gave him a, an extra shade of personality that, he, that I wasn't expecting. So that, uh, that definitely helped as well. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to have to, uh, you know, look him up on Wikipedia again because I, I just I, I think his, his story and his concept is really cool. Yeah, and also, you know what, to, to be honest, one of the things we needed to was we needed to provide a hint that Sion had served another Sith Lord. And so he was there to also remind the player during the game that, hey, guess what, you know, here was the person that I used to serve, and I'm a reminder of that. I'm her, you know, disciple, pupil. I'm here to, you know, as, as a story element in that, in that respect as well. Kind of a, to show, and I think this would, this is also going to, uh, we've been talking about, you know, this as a video game, but it applies to tabletop as well, because what you're doing is you're showing, you're showing the players, you're not telling them, but you're showing them what, their possible future is, you know, the, exactly. this is, this is one way you could go. This is one of your possible endings, you know, if you follow what Darth Treya has to say. Uh, so yeah, I think, you know, again, it's really interesting stuff there, but we have been talking about, well, in my opinion, these are all very iconic villains, but uh, Daryl wanted to touch on that specifically. Daryl, can you tell us more about what you were looking to discuss with regards to iconic villainy? Well, there are just some villains that almost become an archetype of their own. 
for example, the Joker. Oh yeah. The Joker is honestly it he's a base off of pretty much mythology. That's Loki running around. That's uh Eris, that's Coyote. And yeah, he's he is a trickster archetype, there's no doubt about it. Uh but he's got his own sinister take on that too. Exactly. Just like Loki from the Thor films is not the Joker, but they're both the same type of character. And they're just some of those characters that get so big that in a modern sense they can actually redefine that archetype. Like, the, if I mention Loki to people, first thing that's going to pop into their head is the Avengers, for the most part. But well, can if I... I say the Joker, that archetype is going to pop into their head far better. The, from the mythological yes. Loki, it's going to pop I, I into their head perfectly. Can I, can I mention one I think that actually applies almost directly to gaming, though? Sure. If I had to pick one that was iconic, from a gaming source, and, and, and I'm reaching a little bit here. I'm actually going to say Raceland. Yes. Okay. I think Raceland's pretty iconic. I mean, there are a few, you know, dark wizard archetypes out there, Saruman, uh, for one. Um, but if you, you know, there's a particular, I think, trope and style to Raceland that I don't think has really been... Um, quite equals in, in a lot of other uh, media, our understanding of that particular trope or uh, archetype of villain. Yeah, I thought he was a pretty well-crafted character, and he, he went in directions that I wasn't expecting, and I thought they were pretty brave directions. And, I mean, to a lesser extent, maybe Lord Soth would be another a good example. But um, it's hard for me to think of anything, any other from gaming, though, that hasn't, you know, that doesn't have its roots that Strahd. lie in maybe more Strahd. deeper. Strahd? Count Strahd? Uh, okay. Strahd has his roots, I think, in very solidly in, in Dracula. I don't I, I don't think he's iconic like Graceland was iconic or like Lord Soth was iconic. Uh because because he is basically a reflection or a shadow of, of Dracula. I mean, agreed, he's he's cool and iconic. It was you know, if if we lift everything out and we just talked about role playing games in, in an in a vacuum of anything else, yes, he's pretty iconic. I guess I'd go for Would that. Would you consider Vecna iconic? Uh, yeah, I suppose. I mean, well, um, he's still that same kind of Raceland archetype. Only he's he went well. He's basically you know evil wizard plus undead. You know, I mean, I, it's hard. Could you could you describe Vecna without you know, use that test where you describe a character without saying what they do or what they look like? You know, <laughs> with Vecna, I don't think that's something you could do. With Raceland, I think it is. Do you know the test I'm talking about, Daryl? I've heard it before, but yeah. I've, I've never actually tried to put it in practice. It's, it's famously the test which uh, the Star Wars prequels fail at miserably. Um, <laughs> name a character from Star Wars, you know, without their without their uh, job or or what they look like. You know, you could say, okay, let's talk about Han Solo. Well, he's a scoundrel. It's not technically his job. He's a smuggler. Um, you know, he's <laughs> he's cocky. He's brash. He's you know, heart of gold, right? You can describe Han Solo in a ton of different ways without ever referring to his name or his job, right? But if you, anyway, we can get off topic by going too far down that rabbit hole. But well, uh, we're all, we're still talking about characters. We're just happen to be yeah. talking about the good guys right now. Well, yeah, okay, but applying it to villains is saying, you know, uh, I, I think I think one good way to to give someone iconic status as a villain is to see if they do go if you can do that test. Like Doctor Doom, we can describe Doctor Doom without saying dictator and without saying Doctor Doom. We can say ultimate pride because dude is I am Doom, right? 
you know, you can say brilliant, you can say twisted, you can say uh, noble. Deep, deep, deep has a, obviously a very strong love for his mother, which is oh, actually yeah. a very redeemable quality. I mean, he's and willing course, to win. Susan Storm. Yes. <laughs> and then uh, he, he obviously uh, has a great deal of, you know, protective feelings towards a nation he founded, which is yeah. also a very redeeming quality. Noblesse I mean, oblige. Yep. Yeah. So, so I think Dr. Doom, you know, would, would pass that test. And, and I would then say to you, Daryl, I think that might be one way to define an iconic villain would be to say, can you have, can you describe him without using his raw physical characteristics or his job? Fair enough. So anyway, it's just a thought. We should start a game show where we start doing that. <laughs> <laughs> the password is Yoda. Okay. No, I think, I think that's all, that's all very good stuff. Um, Again, I, I think you know, one of the reasons why I asked uh, Chris to come on for this particular episode is uh, you have some really recognizable uh, bad guys uh, throughout your games. I want to go um, a little bit more recent and talk about uh, New Vegas. Sure. Um, and there's, of course, Caesar or Kaiser, um, as he's mentioned in the game with the original pronunciation, uh, who is a interesting character. I, he, I don't think he's quite as complex as some of uh, your other villains, but he's definitely... Uh, he's definitely a big part of the game. That is a. Uh, I should probably uh, uh, clarify the 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 source of uh, Kaiser and House and um, th those two figures in New Vegas. Uh, so the the lead writer, uh, lead uh, creative designer for New Vegas was John Gonzalez, and he is the one who fleshed out those characters. The uh, I think uh, Kaiser is kind of a difficult challenge because I think one aspect of New Vegas is that the Legion side may not have been presented as strongly as the NCR side, and I think part of that might just be due to the the actual physical geography of oh. the of the Mojave. But um, Kaiser, I think, had a little bit of difficulty in terms of 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 how quickly and how easily potentially you could relate to him um i'm i'm mostly just uh, uh comparing him to to mr house because mr house i think oh yeah that's a much better example i think of a memorable mr house yeah. was was Puppet pretty master. much uh john john if i recall correctly john is the one who uh birthed that character and i think house is a prime example of what a fallout antagonist should be he's a larger than life figure he you know and and this is not a a, a minor point but he has a, a a catchy name it's very very archetypal name and that, that i think that falls back to the early roots of fallout where a lot of the major npcs you found in the fallout games before that point were did have larger than life names like that like you know set you know the master like all of those things <laughs> were were very much larger than you know <laughs> any sort of human human designation so i think he did a good job there and house had very you know complex motives that when when tim kane who uh you know was part of the trifecta that that helped to do uh you know guide fallout one's vision when he was playing through uh for new vegas he um he chose mr house and his reason was you know regardless of whatever issues house has he actually is the one that's presenting a reasonable, pragmatic plan for where humanity should go. And I thought that was a really interesting answer because he, he was like, you know what, I, 
I cared enough to analyze what House's motives were versus NCR and versus Kaiser and versus what I could do. And I, I thought I understood that character enough that I was willing to sympathize and uphold his philosophy, which from a game designer standpoint, John Gonzalez should be very, very proud of because that's that's exactly what you want to do with a major character. So uh, would you game. say would you say like from a DM's point of view then, if you're making a villain for your role playing game, then maybe some things on your checklist ought to be larger than life figure, uh, you know, very uh, thematic name and complex motives. Sure, and also it, it it also doesn't hurt if for that bad guy antagonist you know, slash villain, if at some point when the players figure out what his agenda is and why, at least one of them says, oh, I get it, or I understand why he's doing that. I just don't approve the way he's doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and well, I, th- it, I, I think that, that definitely helps. Cause if, like, we, if we could contrast him really quickly with Nihilus, I mean, Nihilus doesn't have complex motives, but he's still a great villain. Um, I, think, I, think, I think it's fair to say that complex motives can help bring out you know i think I th- it's a tool but i wouldn't say it's absolutely necessary yeah i know and i would agree with that i think that um you you do get a sort of like uh i guess a a, a drama bonus a drama bonus of plus five <laughs> if, if, if there's ever any point where the players actually sympathize with something a villain is doing like for like the example that i always try and use is some of the best ways to generate sympathy in a movie for a character is to have that character embody what the audience is thinking. Like, I think one of the reasons Aliens is great is because Ripley says everything that you <laughs> and the audience are thinking. Like, sure, get off the planet and nuke and nuke the aliens from orbit. Who is not thinking that in the movie theater? Like, that is the <laughs> smart thing to do. Whoa, whoa, sure. whoa. There is a substantial dollar value attached yeah. to this installation. <laughs> and that just makes you hate Burke more. You're just like, oh, God, I have that fucking slimy worm. But ultimately, like with Ripley, though, they like. They could bill me. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And like, and like, you know, the audience is thinking that. So immediately they're like, Ripley is she's my woman. Like, god damn it. Like, I I I understand where she's coming from. She's, even she's doing saying that in the first thing I want to say. Yeah, and if you can make a villain do that too, like I think you you're just on the path to win. So, well, I, I guess larger than life. I mean, let's I want to go back to what you just said uh, as well, because I think that's a very good point. But um, one last thing on larger than life. If I had to pick a larger than life bad guy from the New Vegas milieu, to use a word. Um, I would have to select Dr. Mobius. Oh, interesting. Because he is the epitome of larger than life. He is all about science with a capital S and an exclamation point. <laughs> and he's such a nice guy. He wants to conquer all of science <laughs> <laughs> with his robo-scorpions. And, you know, at, at the in the end, and this is, well, again, spoilers, but one of the best things about Dr. Mobius in the end, you find out his motives all along, although... He seems like this crazy 1950s, out of his freaking gourd scientist, mad scientist, you know, epitome. At the very end, he's like, no, 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 I'm doing this to help them, to help the people that you've been helping all along. And it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful uh, experience to find out that the villain I've been fighting is, uh, is uh, you know, actually has a pretty good, um, he, his motivation is something I can get behind. He, uh, yeah, he, uh, 
he's intended to sort of brace up that stereotype and then his actions throughout that uh, that DLC are intended to serve as distractions to protect everybody else and and you know if, and again in the end if you decide that you know it's probably best if you if you attack him and kill him, he's still okay with that too, because he's just, you know, <laughs> Doctor Mobius. <laughs> he's generally so, an all right guy. So, so yeah, you know, and this is something I haven't mentioned before, but uh, that opening line where, like, the first thing like I wanted players to feel when they actually confront Mobius is like, because he's running around his little chamber and he's singing to himself, and I thought that'd be, you know, kind of like, well, that's not what I was expecting. And then, like, you know, past the singing, his first thing is to offer you a mentat. I, I that offering the mentat was intended as a tip of the hat to how Tom Baker yeah the Jelly Babies yes exactly totally thank that. you and because uh, Tom Baker would always try to smooth over any interaction with somebody just by proffering Candy. food and then yeah. I'm like what would Doctor Mobius offer then I'm like oh he would offer drugs <laughs> <laughs> so he's like he wants everybody to be smarter because they do such great things for him yeah, to be fair to be fair in the, in the Fallout universe Mentats are pretty much the harmlessest you know they're they're on the low end of uh, bad drugs just saying but uh, yes. And I, although Radaway might actually be a Radaway is probably the lowest agreed. You know, it's the most innocuous, but Mentats are not that. Anyway, suffice to say, uh, what we've been talking about, just for the listeners who may not know, um, uh, Chris's the game uh, Fallout New Vegas has a DLC, a absolutely brilliant, just should have won every award in the world DLC called Old World Blues, and Old World Blues has uh, is where Doctor Mobius shows up, and you should totally play it. Um, and uh, I have to I have to throw out a, uh, a another tip of the hat. Uh, I I had two other writers uh, on on that DLC for which I am uh, incredibly thankful. Uh, one was uh, Robert Lee, who uh, who did a lot of the uh, the emails and the text messages that appeared um, in the DLC. But in addition to that, I also worked with a fantastic writer named Travis Stout, who I believe is at Ubisoft right now, and he. With, it's very difficult to communicate how how fantastic a job he did, but I'll try. Um, I was trying to figure out how to do the, the the home base mechanics in Old World Blues, and the only thing I knew for certain was that I wanted a bunch of different functionality, and I wanted talking appliances like we're. But that like we're part of like Spider Jerusalem's like apartment and Trans Metropolitan. If anyone's ever read that, I was like, Travis, Woo-hoo. you know, I, I this is what I'm looking for. Like, I need like a little Securitron that collects mugs. Like, Muggy. I just need exactly. I need a bunch of appliances that have personalities. So when you interact with them, like they're totally crazy and funny, and they fit in with the scientist. And he's like, stand back. <laughs> and, then, and then he he went to town and he, he made the light switches that fought with each other. Oh, yeah. And then he got, you know, had Jace Hall doing the the crazy, you know, power hungry, you know, the the the, the, uh, the, the ruthless toaster. And like he did such a good a job with those. Like, with it was a fantastic power source. Yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, yeah, it's Travis is to be commended. Travis did a fantastic job in that DLC. And I, I loved working with him. He was he was great. Well, yeah, I, again, I think it's wonderful. But I don't want to leave, again, I'm, I'm trying not to leave Daryl out because it's a shame. <laughs> I'm having uh, fun listening to you Darryl, guys. Darryl, come back to us. So, Daryl, um, do you have anything else you wanted to cover about iconic villains or what makes a good villain? You guys actually brought up something I wanted to talk about that's not directly gaming related when you talked about Tom Baker. 
And that is, of course, the Doctor's iconic enemy, the Daleks. Well, okay, that them and the Master, I think, would I would say the two biggest, but yeah. And those seem to be on the two different ends of the spectrum of what we've been kind of talking about. Yeah, because some of the Daleks is, are implacable force, certainly. The, the Daleks are implacable force. There are millions of them, but even one of them is enough to inspire fear. Right. Meanwhile, the Master is a plotter and a schemer, depending on which version thereof. So, but they're both iconic classic villains, and especially in the new Doctor, though, Daleks show up a lot. <laughs> well, yeah, but I think I think you got a good point that there is a lot of examples of both those types of villains in in culture and in gaming uh, in general. Like even the old D and D cartoon, I, th- I think you could argue that uh, Tiamat was the embodiment of the unstoppable force, the implacable force, and Venger being the uh, slightly more, you know, relatable you know, villain. Um, I'd, I'd agree with that. Slightly more relatable. He was... <laughs> <laughs> Listen, he, the man had an awesome voice, but uh, yeah, not, a, not an especially deep character. Uh, <laughs> so there's that. But um, anyway, there's a, a really good um, thing about villains that Daryl wanted to talk about. There's a guy that we're fans of uh, called the Spoonie, uh, the Spoonie one, and uh, he does various web shows about gaming. And he did one about about villains and player agency and when and how you can sort of keep your villain alive without removing the ability of your characters to feel like they have some kind of choice or some kind of impact on your world. And uh, Daryl, this is where I want you to come in. Can you yeah. explain to Chris what that situation is and then maybe we'll analyze it? Well, in this specific case, what it was is he was playing in a Star Wars role-playing game. I believe it was the D6 version. And he wanted to give a little treat for us. They they were rebel teens doing this raid thing, and they had accomplished their mission. He kind of wanted to give them a little Easter egg treat and bring them into the Star Wars universe. And so we had uh, them run into Darth Vader, kind of like as a he. they catch him escaping on his jet after they're blowing up the facility. And so instead of just taking that as the Easter egg it was, the player characters, of course, their first reaction is, we have to kill Darth Vader, which they can't do. They're in the, pre- they're in the middle of the Rebel Alliance, so it's, it's, it's the middle of the Rebel era. I think they were playing like uh, around Empire sort of time frame can't really kill Darth Vader in that era or else you're completely breaking from the story which defeats the purpose so my question is how can you get especially in gaming how can you get these iconic villains these great beautiful characters that we all love to hate into a game without getting them killed too early before they see your here is my master plan bond before they have that moment Without just completely stonewalling the characters and, say, and railroading them and saying, no, you can't kill this guy right now. Or yeah, you don't want to some, remove their agency. Exactly, yeah. pulling off some weird elaborate... My players actually browbeat me every time I use contingency for a villain in D&D. Because it was such a cheeseball way. Contingency to a teleport spell whenever he falls below X hit points. But it's such a smart thing to do. <laughs> it, it, it is. And every every single magic user cap- capable of casting those two spells would do that. Good guy or okay. bad guy. So, but... uh, so, so Daryl, you've identified a problem that uh, computer games have quite frequently. And when you introduce a villain, how do you protect that villain 
so he still has the drama and the iconic nature, but yet the players don't feel like they're gypped and not hurting and or killing him. Okay, and that's a really tough thing to deal with. Um, the first unconventional solution in a role-playing game is you do what Quentin Tarantino did in Glorious Bastards. And I don't want to spoil it, but that is always a very entertaining option and should not be discounted. <laughs> and that is uh, just to accept it and and let let things change basically let let the players have oh, their that, day if that you, villain i was thinking about the other villain in the movie yeah oh, okay so so there's <laughs> the that. hitler you're talking about <laughs> yeah. hitler well i was trying yeah, to because like the, 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 the conceit is that you go into that movie thinking that nothing can change and quentin ter- turns it on its head and that's fine and i think that's great it and i think me, that was it amazing took me a year and a half after that movie came out to watch it and i managed to get unspoiled so i don't know how the hell i did that but (laughs) the other thing to do is you don't ever actually present the players with a situation where they think that they could hurt or harm the or harm that villain and it makes sense to them and like asylum yes like when the joker speaks through a tv that's fine like when vader speaks through a holographic projection he's there but he's not. He, the players don't immediately think, "Oh, I could take out a lightsaber and kill this guy." Well, no. Arkham so, City did a really good thing where they had you fight the Joker, but it turns out it was Clayface pretending to be Joker. So you get you you kind of get the the best of both worlds there. You get the players like feel like they had a chance to sort of see you know test themselves against the villain, yet you, you, their victory turns out to be. Uh, only another step towards that final confrontation. Well, then you run into the Doombot problem. Well, is that a problem, really? I mean, I think I think it's actually in in the right genre. It's it's part of you know the the trope, right? I mean, it's really just part of what you're what you're part and parcel of what you signed on for, I guess. If I if I was playing a, a Fantastic Four role playing game, right, I wouldn't feel gypped if I had to fight a Doombot because that's what they do. And I, I would probably see things like Doombots as opportunities. And I don't know if any of you guys have been reading uh, the Avengers AI series they just well, started. I've heard about that. Yeah, they they recruited a Doombot. And <laughs> it is fantastic. Like, he's saying, he's reacting all the ways that Dr. Doom would, but but he's on the side of the heroes. See, that's so an awesome just, idea right there. Oh I love it. Oh, my God. There's one great moment where, like, Daredevil has, quote, unquote, the audacity to try and stop a Doombot on its way to help the rest of the team. And like, you know, Hank Pym's sitting there going, Doombot, you're like, where the hell are you? And Doombot just goes, I will be there momentarily. I have to kill a superhero first. <laughs> and it's just like, he's like filled with things like this that just make the situation more entertaining. But ultimately, because the player characters in that situation were able to convert one of those drones, that just ended up creating an interesting experience for the players. So if you can look for things like that, like that's fantastic. Or if there's some way, like if Darth Vader shows up, maybe you can't hurt him, but because of the player's actions, maybe Darth Vader actually wipes out someone that was standing in the player's way because of some of the players did, like, you know, leaving evidence or humiliating the guy or drawing too much attention to him. All of those things are like, hey, well, you know, I, I got Vader to do some of my dirty work for me. Now I feel really cool. Like, so there's there's ways to do it, but just dangling the person's physical presence in front of players can often breed resentment if you have to make them invulnerable. So well, it's a matter of yeah. context. 
I think I think you're right, Chris. But I would I would go another step further. I'd say I think to if if that's your goal, if you want to show the villain and let the player sort of encounter him later, um, I, I think one of the things the key things here you need to build with your group because it is a social group is uh, is trust. I mean, if they trust you that it's going to be awesome when you finally meet the Joker, right? They're going to be more willing to say, okay, yeah, well, maybe we fought a guy who was, you know, pretending to be Joker and that, and we're not going to be resentful about that because it's, we, we, we trust you that it's going to be awesome in the end. Now, it's, of course, it's harder if you're, you know, you got a group that you haven't gained with very long or if there's, you know, social issues in that group where <laughs> trust is just not, uh, is, is difficult to come by. Um, but in that case, I think it, I would encourage a GM, at least my advice would be, uh, and take that with a grain of salt is uh, my advice would be to be a little open with it. It's okay to be open with your group and say, guys, here's the thing. I realize that, you know, this might be frustrating to you, but just, you know, believe me, it's going to be awesome when, you know, when this pays off. I, I think that, I think that's a, that's a, that's a very pragmatic way to go. And I think I also think that's polite to players too. I think once they understand a compact like that, that, you know, as long as, as long as you're explaining yourself, the, uh, and I which which you can absolutely do, and there's no reason no reason not to. Um, but now I'm now I'm obsessed with the Darth Vader example. So this is all you're you're to blame for this, Daryl. <laughs> the uh, but now I'm thinking we'll have like, a link to that video in the show notes. Yes. So like so one of the harshest lessons I've learned was actually in a Fallout pen and paper game back at Interplay, where the, you know the 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 developers were squaring off against like the rival party, and like I had one of the the antagonists. Who I, you know, I, I, you know, I designed this whole backstory for him. I had a lot of cool ideas for things he could do, and one of the players just went up and critted him with a shotgun. <laughs> and at that moment, I had a choice: like I could either play the GM card and go, "Well, that's not gonna you. That's not gonna something happen. It didn't quite work. He survived. Blah blah blah." Or I could just roll with it. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm just going to roll with it and see what happens. And like, and, and your example, Daryl, like I, I can't help but think like, what if your players had killed Darth Vader? Like, and then you're like, okay, the rest of the campaign is now what all the future movies would have been like without Vader. Like who would have the emperor, who, who would the emperor have gotten as the new disciple? And like how hard would like, we have found Luke Skywalker? Mara Jade. Yeah, exactly. Like, and there's like a whole bunch of possibly, and like, what player would not want to go into the movies knowing they 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 started the whole thing off by killing Vader, and then not not they they would want to see what happened after. It's like a huge what if scenario. I think that would be like fantastic. I would want I would want to play in a game that had the plot lines of the movies, but like if I'd killed Vader from the outset, like I would want to know what happened from that point, like all the repercussions and like the. The, the domino effect, like, I don't know. I, I think that could be really, really cool. I'm going to tell a quick story, too. Um, I was running my Shadows Angels game, my very first one, and I had come up with a, uh, not Ted bad guy, you know, basically, I mean, kind of a similar level of Darth Vader with the Emperor. You know, he was the, the right-hand, you know, due to the big bad of the, of the game. And uh, this guy was, uh, for all intents and purposes, like a Lovecraftian demon. You know, it was very, you know, almost cosmic horror level uh, of a bad guy. Uh, I had made him defeatable, you know, but he was supposed to be incredibly tough. In probably his second appearance, he showed up during a battle because this guy's thing was if you ever said his name three times, he would show up. He was he had that oh, kind candy of candy man. Yeah, he had the he had the Beetlejuice. Aster, Aster, Aster. 
Yeah, he had, he had the Beetlejuice effect going. <laughs> and uh, the player characters unwisely, you know, were sort of saying, well, thank God. Oh, my this God, guy's it's coming through here. the window. Sorry. The, they, they had that whole uh, situation of, uh, I thank God this guy's not here. And one other player goes, who? That guy. You remember? We beat him. Oh, that guy. And the poop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it was already a, a nasty battle. And then he showed up to make it even more nasty. And um, what happened was player characters rolled exceptionally well on critical hits and just max damages. And I was like, wow, he's yeah, he showed up and he went down. It was just that fast. And there was part of me kind of like Chris, where I'm just like, man, I, ooh, as a DM, I'm like, I want to preserve this guy's you know, Mystique is being a powerful, badass dude. But at the same time, I was looking around the table and I saw on the faces of all of my players, they were just anticipation. They were all just on the yep. edge of their seats. They had their fists clenched and they're, they were just like, oh, yes. And I said, you know what? I think it's okay if they just curb stomp my villain <laughs> because they are going to remember this moment and they did it was a high five it's miller time moment you know for my gaming group and they first of all they love the fact that they didn't expect him to be there and then they love the fact also that he showed up and then got put down like a punk <laughs> and you know i was like if they're if they're enjoying it this much how can i not empower yep. that you know how can i not just allow that fun factor to grow even if it's even if it's like, well, yeah, it's at the expense of this bad guy's mistake, but that's okay because I have plenty more where he came from, right? I'm the and GM. I can make more bad guys. Crunch all you want. Grindel's and Ross, that's awesome because, you know, the, the GM's job, you know, you are there to entertain. And, you know, if the players are having a good time and, you know, I, there's, I think that's, that's the way to go. So I guess my, you know, that's a lesson I learned that day was I think sometimes it's okay to let the villains just get curb stomped so that's and a- turned into... You know, it, it's okay. It that's, not, maybe that's, not all the time, but certainly sometimes. That's another tactic I wanted to get you guys' opinion on was what I call Grindel's mother. Okay, you guys curb stomped <laughs> my bad guy. Now his boss is noticed you. So what do you guys think about trying that one? Create, and then you create another character that's even more badass that now has a personal vendetta against the group. Well, I think there's ways to do it that's good. I, I think, you know, Buffy did a great job of, of that sometimes where they would take, you know, Monster of the Week and then turn it into a servant of this guy who was a servant of that guy. Um, and then there's Dragon Ball Z, which you know, probably didn't do it quite so well, where it's like, of course you only defeated my minion. <laughs> you know? uh, he was he was just he was just a test, you know, and then, of course, you defeated the guy up from him. And he's like, aha, but I was a minion of so and so. So, you know, I think it, it's it's all in the way you handle it. Right. I mean, it's it's in the way the context of the game. But. I'm saying it's a, in general, it's a quick in general, I would have to problem. say I'm in favor. Like a, like a quick solution is like, oh crap, this person wasn't supposed to die. What am I going to do? And then I've got all these plots that I've written for the next 15 sessions that all rely on this guy being alive. This is kind of a roll with it and a kind of crapshoot. No, I'm not saying do this constantly like Dragon Ball Z where you're fighting through this guy to get to this guy to get to get this guy to get to this guy. But... This person's dead. I'm not going to take all these plots and schemes and put them onto someone higher in the hierarchy. Well, here's the thing: if it's if it's an important guy to your campaign, right? If this is if this is somebody you had plans for and you had things that was he was going to do, um, you absolutely should find a new way, a new vector of getting those things into your game. And the lesson I've learned from Chris Avalone is find something interesting about that. You know, find a way to 
make the character say, okay, so what, you know, what, what did we learn from curb stomping that bad guy that we now take into the next, you know, in the next step towards the final confrontation? I think that's, that's where I would go for it. Um, but I, absolutely, if there, if there are, if there's unfinished business that you as a GM have prepared for, there's no reason why you shouldn't, you know, take that and repurpose it and bring it back in the game in a new vector. I, you know, it's a, in that particular example, like, you know, if, if like if, if it was like a superhero game, for example, and, you know, certainly the player, the, we, we, I had a pretty, you know, peaceful group in the sense that they, they, they weren't killers. We actually had a separate campaign for the killers. <laughs> <laughs> and, we, and we recognized that the villains were there to be churned through, and that was fine. Um, but with uh, in a superhero campaign, I think uh, you know one interesting aspect is you know so, you know sure you wipe out you know so say 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 they kill the Joker, or they kill Lex Luthor, or whoever it is, someone that you're like holy crap, the campaign cannot survive without him. Um, in that instance, I'd probably, I probably again like like Ross is saying, I, I try and find some way to make that death interesting, yet still keep the tension going in the sense that okay, well, both either Lex Luthor or the Joker, you know, they have a last will and testament, and all that required to be triggered was them to die. Like, what would Lex Luthor do if you know the Justice League of America killed him? Like. I would think the world was in a pretty dangerous situation because if he didn't have anything left to lose mm. and there's a chance that Superman might still be out there, I would the expect, switch. I believe there would be contingency plans all over the place that would suddenly erupt that he would just pull off. And I'm sure the Joker would do that too in his own crazy nihilistic way. So like I would probably just use it as an opportunity and then see if you can put the you know, the, the threats the villain was going to do had he been there in the context of the last will and testament and go, okay, well, I already set all of these, all of these events in motion. And now because you've killed me, there's Xanatos no way to stop him. Yeah. It's the Xanatos Gambit. You, you've, you have played directly to my plans, heroes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Killing okay. me was the first step towards my ultimate victory. I hate to tell you guys this, but I think I'm going to have to cut this part of the podcast because I really, really love it and I want to use it. <laughs> okay. You're not allowed just, to do that. Just, just bleep the whole thing. Uh, well, there's and also, then bleep, bleep, bleep. The best thing a, to do, bleep, bleep, bleep. There's bleep. another thing you could you could pull from. I mean, I'm not going to endorse this quite as heartily because I don't think it's quite as good for RPGs as uh, some of the other things we've talked about. But there is always the approach that uh, Straczynski took in Babylon 5 where he actually had trapdoors built into his main characters where he had a plan B for if that actor were to leave the show. And could basically replace them with a character that would accomplish the same, uh, that would hit all the same, you know, check check marks towards the uh, scripted, you know, confrontation at the end. So, I suppose you know one one alternative might be is to just maybe write down a, a little postcard or a, a you know a few sentences, maybe a paragraph of you know if this villain does get curb stomped, uh, you know, I've got a plan B. Just saying, you know, there are some GMs out there who that, that might fit their particular style as a suggestion. Yeah, and then also, I think Babylon 5 also had that additional advantage. And then there were so many conflicts going on at so many different levels that even knocking one of the bad guys out certainly didn't reduce any of the dramatic tension for the series. Like, there, there were so many other threats you had to worry about that that was only a temporary stop. And in fact, even even knocking a main character out could arguably make the entire situation worse for everybody, which was another interesting aspect for like, hey, what if you, 
you know, what if you're convincing your players that perhaps killing the evil emperor is not a good idea because if his entire government becomes destabilized, then you lose the war effort that they could have marshaled to help you out. Like, that's a terrible, horrible dilemma to throw at the players. Like, well, it's a, we, we have to tolerate this guy for a while until we win the war, you know, but man, he's, he's not a very good person. Yeah. Well, I, I love, one of the things I love about, you know, uh, GMing is to throw those, those awkward, uh, uh, moral questions in there and say, you know, well, you know, you got to make a choice here and uh, neither one of them is, is just obvious black and white. So, yeah, well, you I, could you could shoot the problem, <laughs> but the problem could then explode. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> uh, well, so one more I, think, I want these I wanted to bring ahead. up before we move on to another subject. We've been going on for a while about this, but this one is actually in the core Shadowrun book. At least it was in second and third edition, which is did you find the body? which is, sure, they get a lucky shot and blow the guy's head off, and the body falls back, and then the shot hits a support beam, and the building collapses on top of him, and you guys got to get out of here now before Lone Star gets here. And then he shows up several sessions later, put back together with cyberware and, gl and gum. My group always calls that, uh, he's got Doc Wagon, or there's always Doc Wagon. Yep. <laughs> there's always Doc Wagon. They, you know, they, if they find a hair, they'll clone him from it. <laughs> he paid them very well, you know. Uh, yeah, that's that is always a possibility. There are some very memorable bad guys. There's an anime called Giant Robo that has one of my favorite. Oh villains. my god, that is a great series. Uh, Baron Baron Alberto from Giant Robo is like the, the coolest dude in the universe as far as bad guys go. But he's also the master of the. Did you find the body? He's like his whole deal is he can like control every molecule in his body, yep. and he can turn into pretty much anything. So. Uh, at one point in the in the show, he gets shot in the face, falls off a cliff, and everyone assumes he's dead because they can't find the body. Uh, yeah, he, he turned into a drift of snow <laughs> and shows up later in one of the most and epic final FUs to the bad guy, to the actual <laughs> bad guy I've oh. ever seen. That's and that's a fantastic uh, example and a, and a lesson to learn from, like the. If you give like a villain a, a really interesting narrative reason for their powers, for why they can keep coming back, like I, I read uh, this comic called the called the Thunderbolts, so basically you know it's oh. you know Marvel's version of the Suicide Squad, and in in the issue, uh, Red Leader, who's a very very smart guy, just happens to casually mention that he stores backup brains on the internet. <laughs> so if he ever gets killed or whatever, a new brain is downloaded somewhere, but he just, he just throws God it out us there. If they get the fortune brain. Oh, <laughs> Oh my God. We're drowning in horrible pictures of horrible things that I can't unsee. Oh God. Keep screaming out of here. Water in my get eyes. Get the fuck out. <laughs> no, that's, that's a really cool idea. Yeah. And Chris, by the way, kudos. I, I had no idea you'd seen Giant Robo, so that's a whole new conversation for Actually, us to have. And I had no I, idea I, that anyone else read Thunderbolts other than me. Yeah, and you know what, guys? Uh, for your interview with Tim Donnelly, ask him about Giant Robo, because he's oh. the one who, who introduced me to it. Oh, okay, that'll be fine. That will be fine. And so, Daryl, I, I, you know, I, I do want to move on, so I just want to ask yeah. you, do you have anything else you wanted to say about that? Uh, no, I think we pretty much covered everything. I mean, there's one other one, but... It's always been, in my opinion, the lamest way to do, which is throw mooks at the PC so the bad guy can get away. That's the cheapest way you can do it. In my well, yeah, it, well, it, it works, but players hate to lose is the yes. thing. So that's one of the things about like um, you can do the classic 
I, I found this out like trying to run feng shui, for example. And I wanted to do the classic, you know, the bad guys show up, have a fight, and then they escape. You know, we'll get you next time gadget. And, yeah, players just hate that, like, I can't believe they got away. And they will do everything in their power. You know, you, you're like, well, no, this the chase scene happens, and then they get away. So uh, that is definitely, if you want to do that, that is really one of those where I would strongly, strongly, strongly say get the trust of your group and explain to them, guys, here's the thing. I want, you know, trust me, it's going to be awesome, but they get away. You know? Um, oh, that, so you, that reminds me of a story of one that I actually did that goes along with your role with it. And they did you find the body? And except they kept finding the body. It was a D&D campaign. And there was I made <laughs> I made the most under optimized anti-paladin third edition has ever seen he had like five classes including monk what happened was the pcs kept slaughtering him and i'm like i really want to use this guy again so i kept having him try to get away and they would go through extensive lengths to chase him down and kill him and then i would just have <laughs> the body the first time i did it, the body vanished contingency spell blah blah i knew i couldn't pull that off again because they were pissed then every single other time he died the rest of the guys got away and dragged the body with them or cut off a lock of hair or a finger. And of course he comes back again. And then there was the one time they completely obliterated the body. He still came back because it's D and D there's resurrection spells. Yeah. In those cases, I think you, you've got to have, you got to have a, a talk with the players about expectations, because I think in a situation like that, the player's default expectation is this is a problem that they can solve if only they come up with the right solution. And they're going to feel frustrated because there is no right solution. You know what I mean? Well, the first time it was frustrating. At that point, it just became a running gag because it, <laughs> it was the opposing adventuring group. They were both chasing after the same goal. So it was like the counterparts to all of them. And to give them that they can get away every time, I'll get you next time, Gadget, this anti-paladin became the sacrificial lamb that they got to slaughter every single time. And it, it, my group loved it. So that, okay. is, that is a really interesting way to do it. That's pretty cool. You know what? Uh, I, I, I think I, I may steal that. And if I do, after they, have the, uh, after they catch on to what's going on, I think I'm, I, I will be sure to give you credit, Daryl. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, I stole an idea from you, so feel free to have that one. <laughs> well, I think at this point I, do, I have to do something because the Planescape Torment fans will just – Destroy me if I have Chris Avalon on my podcast and a podcast about villains, and we don't talk about Ravel Puzzle Well. Oh my God! Okay, I think I think that is just a a, a necessary conversation to have. Yes, the, uh, the 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 proto Kraya. <laughs> yeah, well, I I think one of the one of the coolest things I I went to uh, to Tampere, Finland, uh, to talk to uh, guys at a convention called Trackon about uh, gaming. I was a guest of honor, and they had a uh, panel about Planescape Torment because the new Torment Numenara had just been announced, you know, and they were really excited to talk about the, the old game and what the new game was going to come out with. And and in, they invited me to come join them on the panel, which I thought was awesome. And on the panel, I, the only really thing I had to add, I said, did you guys know that Ravel Puzzlewell has kind of shown up in some other uh, other games? And I am, you know, Darth Treya is, uh, Kreia is is a reflection of of Ravel Puzzle Well. And they were like, ooh, you know, this is this was new information. So uh anyway, uh, Chris, why don't you tell us, you know, what who is Ravel and what makes her special as a villain? Uh Ravel Puzzle Well is an extremely powerful night hag in the Planescape universe. And 
she her entire sort of uh character concept revolves around the fact that her existence is kind of like this tree that grows throughout the plains. So in any instance where you're confronting her, that's only one branch of her many personalities that you might, you know, find it in, at another place in time or another dimension. And and we try to reinforce that by actually having her show up in the Icewind Dale series, for example. Like, generally, any time you saw an elderly blind character <laughs> in the Icewind Dale games, you like there was some hint that even if they didn't realize it themselves, that that was one of Ravel's aspects that would occur in uh, the Forgotten Realms. She's kind of like uh, the Eternal Champion, but for bad guys. Yes, and uh, and that way that also provided a convenient excuse so that when she, you know, should she ever befall a horrible fate, you know, and, you know, torment, hypothetically, uh, there was always a, her, her very character explanation lent itself to, well, she could still be around in some other form for some other branch that hasn't died yet. And we'd already reinforced that with players much earlier on in the game as as they encountered aspects of her that they didn't necessarily realize. Updated my of... journal. Yes. And then, um, yeah, so, uh, and part of her character concept was I thought it would be really interesting if she was an antagonist who was genuinely trying to do the right thing, but she was trying too hard <laughs> and she ended up making a a situation even more broken than it was. But she did it for all the right reasons, and she did it because she, well, from primarily you know cared about doing the right thing, but two, like she felt very you know motherly towards the player character. Like she you know she she loved him. She wanted to help him out. She wanted to to improve his state in life. Like and then things did not go very well in the long scheme of things, and it had all sorts of horrible night night hag complications that come along with that. And I, I I just thought that'd be really interesting for a player to explore where you've you've had this huge build up to how nasty this person is and all the evils they've done, which is a lot like you in Torment. And then you meet her and there's a lot more going on. And even though she's incredibly dangerous and powerful, on some level, you realize that, you know, like, this kind of sucks because she was actually just trying to do the right thing and help someone out. She just didn't do a very good job of it. Well, uh, just as a quick aside, uh, I think if you looked at Accursed and you looked at uh, the crone or Baba Yaga, you might also see some hints of Ravel Puzzle Well. <laughs> Although they're not blind, but you know, I, I didn't quite want to go quite that far. But uh, it, it would be lying for me to say that I wasn't feeling a little bit of that when I was working. By the way, uh, I liked what you did uh, with Baba Yaga. I thought that uh, the way you've done her character concept and the thing that she's struggling with and the layer to her, the layer to her backstory, which I wasn't expecting until I got to her section of the rulebook, was very, very well done. Ross, I don't, I don't want to spoil it for for any players playing at a curse, but I thought that was that was very tricky and clever and interesting. Oh, thank you. Well, I I can't take full credit for that. Jason Marker, uh, one of my co-authors, uh, and I, we both kind of worked together on that, so I, I will give him the the, the lion's share of the credit. But uh, yeah, thank you and. I, I just want to say, you know, that's one of the things I thought was great about Ravel. She was inspiring. She was a type of villain, as we said before, you know, iconic in, 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 in some ways. 
And I love kind of how you've been, you know, reusing her and how you've took that one central concept that she is kind of everywhere, that she is unraveled, as, as they say, you know, in, in throughout the planes. And we do see her show up in, in Star Wars. Like we see her show up in the Forgotten Realms. Well, to, to, to be fair, the, the Star Wars, the, the uh, Kreia, um, the, there's, that, there, there's actually no, obviously no, no story connection between the two of them. Kreia was just born out of the fact that I felt there was a lot more stories to tell about Ravel, and there were some themes about Ravel's character that I didn't feel I'd, I'd gotten enough of. Hey, listen, I, Hasbro owns the whole thing now, so it's cool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> they yeah, own D and D, and they own yeah, Star Wars. It's it's, it's fine. You could you just say it. Yeah. So they so yeah, <laughs> well, but no, but with, with Nice Republic too, I was just like, you know what? It, it, I I'd always wondered what it would have been like if you'd been able to get Ravel as a companion in your party, and then I'm like. Well, okay, this here's an opportunity to do it. I'll just, you know, make her an ex Sith Lord and then you can, you know, and then she then you can have a a character that uses some of Ravel's themes and personality and then just go from there. And I that was a lot of the inspiration for it. Yeah, well Kray is everyone's evil grandma. <laughs> she's she, she's like uh, you know you, you you need to be guided young one you need to be guided towards the proper use of your uh, die 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 <laughs> she's, she, she's awesome but um like i said i think it's what, I, what, what from the, the standpoint of creating villains though i think that's a neat idea that if you have let's say i'm a dm let's say i come up with what i think is you know my favorite villain whatever that may be and then you know you establish somehow that this villain is is active in other worlds and other continuities and other places and times. That's the thing I thought was most compelling about it, is that then you could you could basically pull anything out. Like if you wanted to have let's let's say we are you know in Planescape and we come across you know some uh, crazy pictograph that shows us pictures of a high tech universe and we see Ravel universe Ravel uh, puzzle puzzle wall there. That wouldn't be that surprising because you've already built up that concept. You know what I'm saying? And there's – with gaming groups that have been together for a really long time, um, of which I've been privileged to be a part of a couple times, it's interesting to see those recurring themes. And I think having recurring villains, even across campaigns, even across game systems, uh, is actually kind of a cool idea if you do it right. And I think Ravel is a really good way of – example of doing it right well sorry go ahead i think i think if you if you provide the right narrative explanation i think there's a whole bunch of ways you can do that as as long as the players have been introduced the concept early they understand that's part of the the lore and then uh i think it's just it, it you know it's like you're saying like encountering those people again and again and you know the reason why you can do that like i think it just gives a lot more weight you know to to meeting that character, you know, in the game. So, and as I said, it's not going to work with every group because it's going to rely, you know, it's going to rely on that that recognition. So it's going to need a group that's that does things together for quite a while. But some, of, I'm sure, some of our listeners are are blessed enough to have long term gaming groups like that. So, uh, I, I just thought I'd bring it up as an example. And that's going to bring us pretty close to last call. So we should really. I got- Thing uh, give give Daryl a chance to talk. I was, <laughs> was going to say, I've got one last thing. we got Chris on the show. I've got to ask him this. And Ross, you as well, because you've also worked in multiple media. How does your approach to creating a villain change in different media? Because I could go up and wholesale steal a villain for my favorite book or TV show, but that may not work in a tabletop role-playing game. So 
how do you approach the different genre, the different media? Is it is a villain a villain a villain, or do you have to tweak them to make them work in an RPG? Is there a different approach? Uh, that is a good question. Um, sometimes it depends on. Uh, very rarely do I actually have the luxury of working on um, something that you know we as a studio create. Like usually we're using something like you know either Star Wars or Aliens. And each of those genres comes with its own rules for how you should portray villains. Like Star Wars has a different presentation for how the villains should be in Star Wars. And that, and that guides a lot of your design parameters for those villains. Aliens also has a very certain way of how you should present aliens. Like one thing that we struggled with with aliens is... I mean, they are not like things that you talk to or socialize or have to, you know, try and negotiate, you know, diplomatically with them. They are a force of nature in the game. And as such, how do you present them as that force of nature? Like, and how do you, how do you present the information about aliens to the player? Because to an extent, giving aliens stats that are like, that are like visible to a player makes them less scary. And that's an interesting thing to think about, like giving giving things like the force in Star Wars actual numbers and 20 D6. I think that actually hurts the presentation of the force. And those are things you have to carry into the villains as well. So um, to, to reference back to an, stats, they will kill it. They, exactly. Yep. And, and, is, and is that always what you want? Like, is that is that the best way? to portray a force user and star wars you know is 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 numbers the way to go like I, I don't know if i agree with that like that's a that's a that's a good point to to bring up the the other thing was what you were saying earlier before about how to present the villain without the players feeling like they're being gypped because they can't kill him and that's a struggle that uh, developers have had for a long time. Usually, like there's either the indestructible glass wall, or you know, one you know, one thing that I tend to fall back on is, hey, you know, this person is speaking to you through a camera or a hologram. It's very clear why you can't kill them, but yet at the same time, it's still important that you're exposing the player to that villain early on or as early as you can because you want them to realize who the supposed adversary is and assign a face to that character as well because it's important because like that gives it added weight when you encounter that villain later on you're like oh i know who that is without them saying a word you're like visually i know who that character is and i know why his appearance is a big deal because of all the foreshadowing i laid for it and that can either be you know um a symbol the character has like an evidence of that character's passage like one thing we did for the new vegas dlcs is a lot we we had a problem in that because you could play them out of order you could potentially have killed the villain in the very first dlc you go to or the antagonist of the first dlc you go to but we so we had to include ways of how do we include this villain slash antagonist presence in the other DLCs if he's already potentially dead or the player can't directly interact with him because voice actors are expensive. Um, and we, we 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 broke it down into that that antagonist has a symbol. Ulysses. That he, yes, that he uses quite frequently. So as you're going through areas and you see that symbol, you're like, hey, that's kind of weird. 
And then you see a pattern to that symbol and you're like, oh, that's interesting. And then you see the context where those symbols are showing up. And then suddenly you draw a voice to that symbol and then a person's appearance to that symbol. And then you start interacting with it. There's ways to build it up without the, the kid, the villain actually being there physically. And I think Chris did a really genius thing is he actually took that a further step with Ulysses <laughs> because Ulysses whole thing is he's sending you a message. He's a messenger. Yep. And that's what I was like, oh, wow. So so not only is that symbol, as Chris saying, you know, serving the purpose of introducing us to him and having us interact with him without him being there, it's also core to his concept because he's sending us a message and we're receiving that message. That's what I'm getting. That's what I, that's what I loved about Ulysses. Sorry, go ahead. And yeah, and well, that's uh, I, I, there's there's ways to do it, and, and game developers have to struggle with that quite a bit because players are very trigger happy, and no matter how well you set up a, a cutscene, they will find some way to kill Lord British. Well, I think I think it's fair to say we've we've discussed on this podcast uh, that players are very trigger happy in both the RPG area and <laughs> the video game area. So yeah. Um, you know, although what, what Chris was talking about what did bring up something that is more specific, specifically RPG-related and, and villainy, and we should have probably discussed this earlier, especially with uh, Daryl's well-known proclivities, um, but Lofweir. <laughs> Lofweir is a iconic oh. villain, and he is, the, he is the way he's implemented in Shadowrun, for example, is uh, in a way where he doesn't have stats, right? Well, at least I don't think he, he does. normally well, all right. Sometimes he has stats. Depends on which edition we're talking about. Yes. Um, but the key thing with Lofweir is he's already thought of that. That's his power. That's his main ability. <laughs> he's already thought of that. Um, his other main power is you're never going to interact with Lofweir directly. Well, you're well, going I mean, to go through like eight layers of his. That's the challenge, structure. right? I mean, that's that's what Chris was just talking about. Is I think that's the thing that I would want to emphasize to a Shadowrun GM who wanted to use Lofweir was to kind of maybe take some of the things Chris had just talked about and find ways to, because it is kind of, I mean, Lofweir is best when he is someone that the players have spoken to, have talked to, have interacted with. I don't think he's, I don't think he's best as a faceless, you know, name whispered on the wind that we never, ever, ever talked to, but can always foil our plans, right? I think it's better off if, as Chris says, if you have some kind of interaction with them. So that's what, that's all I'm saying is I think that's the challenge. I, I would concur with that. Are you familiar with Lofweir, Chris? Uh, I wasn't until you started describing it, but he sounds like a really great character concept. Yeah, he's a, he's a, a dragon who is also the CEO of a mega corporation. So he's super, super smart, super rich. And physically super powerful, right? I mean, he's he's pretty much the the apex predator of the Shadowrun. <laughs> and uh, what that means is, is like he's got all the resources he needs to crush or anything. And I think Lofweir is a great concept, an idea, but I think sometimes it can be really frustrating. It's almost like the Elminster effect in in reverse. The Elminster effect is a bad guy, you know. Whereas in in, in Shadow Realms, you know, pretty much any problem could be solved by Elminster. Uh, in Shadowrun, pretty much anything you do as a Shadowrunner can be undone by Lofweir, and you know that, right? So it, it, any interaction with Lofweir kind of becomes like a Xenatos Gambit where he's like, I knew you would do that, therefore I have prepared this contingency. And I think the challenge then ahead of you as a Shadowrun GM is to find a way to make that compelling and interesting to your characters. And I, I just think that some of the, the advice that we've discussed on this podcast would be 
where I would point you to to maybe uh, you know add a little depth to that. Uh, Daryl, do you concur? Uh, yes. <laughs> I have reduced Daryl to wordlessness. <laughs> well, I'm I'm also friggin' exhausted too, so Rocky, uh, right? Uh, but yeah, Loveware is a great villain, a great concept for a villain. But like I said, you gotta you gotta approach him carefully, or else you're running into a lot of the problems we've already talked about, where it's going to be frustrating for the players because they can't beat this guy. It's going to be frustrating to them if they never actually get to directly interact with them, at least in some way, shape, or form. But it's also a really good... He is a good, like, final villain, in my opinion, because you can start laying hints so early in a campaign because he's working through so many cat's paws that they never figure it out until suddenly the one clue falls into place and, oh my god, Lothbeer's been behind this the whole time. And that's when they get that clue moment, and then they know who they're going for, and that's when we can start getting that interaction in, because by that point in the game, they're going to have the experience with the system, as well as the more experienced players with the better gear and better stats, that they might stand a chance against being able to do something about whatever plan he's got hatching. I know that well, was not I'd... a dragon pun. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, but I, I, I think that does actually bring us pretty close to uh, the last call. So why don't we let Chris tell the listeners uh, where they can find you on the web and what your latest things are that they should be keeping an eye out for. Oh, well, thank you, Ross. Uh, so um, first off, I wanted to extend the invitation to anyone listening that uh, if you ever have questions about uh, uh, game development or uh, game writing, uh, I, I always uh, am happy to try and provide advice or answer questions. Uh, usually the, the best avenue I have for that is my Twitter account, which is called, imaginatively enough, uh, just uh, Chris Avalon. And uh, if you can fit your question within 140 characters, uh, please feel free to drop me a line. And if I can provide advice, I'm always happy to do that. When I was trying to get in the industry, there were very few people that would answer my questions. And now that I'm in the industry, I would like to change that. So please, please feel free. Do not be shy. Currently, projects that uh, I'm I'm working on is uh, I finished up a lot of the pre-production work for Wasteland 2, although I'm still writing the more fictionalized stuff for Wasteland 2 as well, which I believe they're going to have in a recent update either today. I, I haven't checked the net recently, obviously. Uh, either today or tomorrow, uh, although today is going to be different because I don't know what day this podcast is going up. But anyway, look for it. And then, uh, yeah, and then I'm uh, working on uh, Torment, Tides of Numenera with a lot of the old crew, uh, Colin McComb, who was on the first game, and Kevin Saunders, who I've worked with quite a bit on previous projects, including uh, Knights of Republic 2 and Mass the Betrayer, and he is a great guy, and Adam Heine is also on uh, the, the Numenera game, which is great, and my buddy Monty Cook, who rejected <laughs> so many of my proposals, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, they got a really good crew going on with that, and uh, I'm really looking forward just seeing where things go you know i would love to see if you ever have uh, like a list of this, these things or something of the, pr the proposals that you sent because i'm just kind of curious as to what you wanted to do that yeah some of, them are pretty, some of them are pretty terrible okay. uh, <laughs> and I, I i don't blame him although one did break my heart because i had a, a whole collection of short adventures just called one night stands 
and uh <laughs> that the, those had some of my favorite adventure hooks in it and i was i was sad when that one got the the big no as well but uh but uh, I got to work with Monty again eventually down the road, and he I, I hope that he was happy with the, the Torment game when it first came out. So hopefully that uh, that redeemed me in his eyes, but we'll see. Yeah, well, I, the only last thing I'm going to leave you with is uh, you were also responsible for that guy who blew up my girlfriend in uh, Alpha Protocol. <laughs> they use Vault. Sort of. <laughs> uh, that, is a, that is a very complicated story. Uh, so sometimes when you are a narrative designer for computer games, and I'll keep this really short, Daryl, you inherit a lot of characters. <laughs> and uh, when I first started writing on Alpha Protocol, I actually was given all the character models and backstories, and I had to rearrange them like pawns to tell a another version of that story, which is a very interesting experience. So the original murder of that girlfriend <laughs> uh, was actually designed by Ryan Matsoda, who's working on, uh, I believe, Dead State right now, which is another Kickstarter RPG. Damn you, Brian Matsoda! <laughs> and uh, yeah, originally uh, she was supposed to get uh, blown up under a different set of circumstances, which we ended up changing in the, the second version. But yeah, un- unfortunately, uh, she... She was destined to die down one of those branches, but that was uh, that was not for my brainchild. Oh, I just, but that's uh, one of the things you love to do. I mean, I think that's the thing I love to do, especially in a superhero game, is to say, well, you can say you can capture me, hero, or you can disarm this bomb I've placed in the orphanage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's the choice you get now for protocol where I was like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> you know? Oh, no. And so, yeah, I had to uh, in order to save the world, I had to let my girlfriend get blown up. I respect your choice, Ross. <laughs> it's the it's the greater good. The greater good. And unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, the, the 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 life of a spy is bigger than any one person. And that's a uh, yeah, that's what we're sort of shooting for there. So I no, I, I I respect that. All right, man. Hey, it's been a real pleasure having you on the Gamers Tavern. Thank you so much for dropping by and joining us and uh, letting us know all about how to build awesome villains. Well, uh, Ross and Daryl, thanks again for inviting me. This was this was a blast. I really enjoyed it. And uh, if I get around to that Arcanum uh, playthrough and get all the way to the end, I would love to have a uh, a podcast where I go over where we just discuss Arcanum between us and uh, and see what comes out of it. Oh yeah, I I am down for that. I will hopefully get Daryl to play the game before then, and uh, <laughs> we will we will definitely uh, I take you up on that offer for sure. Sounds great. All right. And Daryl, did you have anything last to say as the uh, barkeep is giving me the eye? It's uh, old Mac is saying that it's it's time to put the put the mugs away. Well, uh, that's about it. But uh, Chris, did you happen to mention the Kickstarter that you you have one going on right about now, don't you? Oh, I'm, you know what, Daryl? Thank you very much. That is a horrible oversight on my part. So, um, OK, uh, to give a little bit of backstory, uh, I uh, got to be a cameo on the Wayside Creations Nuka Break web series, which was set in the world of Fallout. It's and, so uh, awesome. You yeah, see it, it. they did a really good job with it. The, both seasons are now online, plus a, a movie they did called Red Star, which was fantastic. Um, and they decided that they had such a good experience with that that they wanted to look for other game properties to do web series and or movies based off of. And I was able to introduce them to the Legend of Grimrock developers 
and they were very excited about the possibility. So they started a brand new Kickstarter, which is running right now. It's basically to fund a Legend of Grimrock uh, web series, much like what they did with Fallout Nuka Break. And uh, I'm a big Grimrock fan, and I hope that there's more Grimrock fans out there that would want to see something like that, because I think uh, Wayside Creations would do a really, really good job with it. And if anybody out there wants to make a web series about Accursed, uh, email <laughs> Ross at thegamerstavern.org. And how long is that Kickstarter running for, Chris? Uh, that, I'm not sure how many days it has left as of this moment. And that, that is a worthy cause, so I, I definitely endorse that as well. Yeah, thank you for that, Daryl. I, 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 I feel ashamed that I did not <laughs> think to keep that on my radar. Forgive <laughs> me, Wayside Creations. Forgive me, Zach. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's what producers uh, are for. <laughs> well, the good news is you did get the word out to all of our, our listeners. So, uh, again, thank you for showing up on the show, and uh, we will uh, be looking forward to talking to you again in the future. It'll be my pleasure. We here at the Gamers Tavern would like to once again thank Chris for taking the time out of his very busy schedule to be with us tonight. And I'm sorry if we kind of spoiled you last time with Ross joining us for reading the comments, but like many freelance game designers, Ross is very busy. And that's one thing I've kind of learned since starting this podcast in October is that scheduling freelance game designers is a lot like herding cats. Uh, their schedules are always in flux, and unfortunately, Ross couldn't be with us tonight. And speaking of back in October... I don't know if you guys actually know what I do on this podcast, aside from, you know, drunkenly ramble, but I kind of handle all the behind-the-scenes stuff for the most part. That's why I put Ross up front and center. He's the host of the show. He takes care of a lot of the above-the-line stuff. If you remember us talking about that a couple of podcasts ago, uh, he's the on-air talent. I handle the editing. I handle the equipment. I handle the accounting. And that's where I've just been fucking floored by you guys and how awesome you are because I looked at the numbers for our listenership and I don't know what we did. I don't know what you guys did. You're spreading the word and I love that because this is January 16th and we at this point in time have already far surpassed the number of listeners we had our entire first month. This week alone, since the last episode, has the same number of listeners that we had for the entire month of January. So I am just completely blown away. I am so glad you guys are listening. I'm so glad you guys are spreading the word. And please keep doing so. Keep posting on Facebook, on Twitter, on Google+. Let people know about the podcast because... You guys are the reason why we do this. It's as much fun as it is for us to sit here and chat with game designers and talk about all these things. It means nothing if we're talking to dead air. This is all about you, and we really appreciate it, and we thank you so much. And, again, uh, speaking of how we can hear from you, uh, we are going to talk about a few comments. And, again, I want to praise you guys, because a lot of these comments were about our last episode, which was on Edition Wars. And it was particularly one of the most contentious periods in Dungeons & Dragons history when we're talking about Wizards of the Coast taking over, 
third edition, Pathfinder, fourth edition D&D, and all the comments we've gotten have been civil and cordial and very nice, and I'm impressed you exemplified the best in the gaming culture, and I want to thank you so much for that. But let's go ahead and start reading some of these comments from our listeners. Uh, we have one from, uh, let's go ahead and start off with one of our regulars, uh, the Grumpy Celt, or the Grumpy Celt. Um, okay, dude, um, can you please do me a favor and send me an email or a message and let me know which pronunciation you prefer? Because depending on dialect and region, both are technically correct, and, and I always kind of feel like an asshole when I mispronunciate someone's name, especially when it's a username, considering mine is abstruse, and I cannot count how many times people have, you know, dropped the S. Um, abstruse, abstruse, uh, obtuse, it's a dictionary word. It's a member, it's a word in the English language. Look it up in a dictionary. It's in Sherlock Holmes novels. Forgot. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. <clears throat> anyway, uh, the Grumpy Celt, or Celt, says, Another entertaining episode. I also like 4th edition, though I know it's unpopular in some circles. Part of why I like it is the graphic design. Everything is very clear in terms of powers, timing, and the like. However, I hate 4th edition Forgotten Realms. I hate it so much, I had revelation and realized that 4th edition Forgotten Realms is part of the anti-life equation Sought by Dark Side. Um, I'm not gonna quite say anything on that, but um, there's a reason why I picked this comment to read. I'm I'm not agreeing or disagreeing, but draw your own conclusions. Uh, anyway, he continues. Um, I also wrote Thieves Guild and Banking Guild for Ian Publishing. Banking is kind of silly in a Terry Pratchett sort of manner. The the dungeons of liches and vampires are mortgaged to the hilt. Anyway, I had to write up two prestige classes for the book, and those were the weakest part of the book. And I'm sure you guys remember the podcast from last week where we talked about this, and prestige classes were a double-edged sword, to say the least. It was a great idea that, because of the OGL license... And because of just the bloat of the additions and, uh, yeah, things just went to hell. By the way, um, if I, correct me if I'm wrong here, but Ian Publishing is the game publishing branch of Ian World, which is one of the bigger RPG message boards. I, I know this because I've talked to Morris a lot. Uh, Morris is one of the guys behind Ian World, and I've tried to get him on the podcast many times, but... He, the scheduling, remember what I said about hurting cats? Imagine hurting cats and adding in a six hour time difference. So yeah, hopefully we'll have him on, but yeah, I, I love Ian World and they do some really, really high quality books. If you haven't seen them before, check them out. Um, we have another one from Andreas Share. Shari, Shari. I apologize again for mispronouncing. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm butchering it. Um, Andreas says, Belated happy holidays and happy new year to both of you. Well, thank you very much. Happy holidays to you as well. 
I've been waiting on this episode since part one. I have always thought Hasbro dropped the ball when they acquired Wizards of the Coast, since they don't seem to have done much with the possibilities. I mean, really, where are the G.I. Joe and Transformer RPGs? Um, okay, while I see what you're saying when it comes to Hasbro and D&D, um, Ross kind of made the perfect point in our last episode of the podcast, where he talked about how tiny of a drop in the bucket Wizards of the Coast is to Hasbro. There are pretty much two companies that dominate any sort of family or children's entertainment. That's Hasbro and Mattel. So, literally, it is a drop in the bucket for anything that Wizards of the Coast does, according to them. So, if you want a Transformers RPG or a G.I. Joe RPG or anything like that, really, Wizards of the Coast would have to go to Hasbro and ask them for it because any sort of profits they would see off that because the RPG industry, while it's one of the biggest growth industries in entertainment in terms of percentage, it's still a tiny, tiny slice of the pie overall. So, so you definitely do not want to blame Hasbro for that one. Um... But that does lead me to a very interesting story that's kind of come to light recently, where apparently they have been working for years to do a Dungeons & Dragons setting for Magic the Gathering. I mean, seriously, how much of a no-brainer is that Magic the Gathering setting for D&D? They tried apparently three times to get that printed and on the board. It just fell apart every single time because, like Ross was talking about in that episode, the corporate culture that ended up getting involved. It's two different departments kind of fighting over it. So you would get this department statting up this creature, this planeswalker, and the other department saying, no, that's not right. It needs to be more powerful or less powerful. And yeah, that sort of stuff happens in these sort of environments. But... Uh, yeah, things broke down every single time they tried to do it. Um, anyway, um, Andreas had another comment based on something Ross posted on the Gamers Tavern, where he asked, and I would seriously like to hear from you as well, uh, he asked what you would like to hear from the upcoming year, 2014, from the Gamers Tavern. And his reply was, Ross, in response to your question, what we'd like to hear you cover in upcoming episodes, how about actual play podcasts and online RPG sites like Obsidian Portal and Inferno? Well, we've been planning, since I started this podcast, I built this entire site, this network, for growth. So I have been planning since day one to expand beyond just our Gamers Tavern podcast, and if things go to plan within the next month, you'll start seeing some of those seeds grow, and actual play podcasts have been part of that, but that's not on the table quite yet just because of I'm still working out some technical problems because I, if I do an actual play, I still want high-quality audio on it, and doing that online can sometimes be a problem, and I, I don't want to expose you guys to my gaming group. Seriously, you've heard me talk about them. Um, but yeah, I, I just wanted to let you know that we're 
that that is something we're looking for we're looking towards and hopefully we'll get that for you soon and as far as your other things that you were talking about um um yeah um i also want to let you know that we've recorded an episode it's and any grammar nazis in the crowd might not like this phrase but i'm kind of doing it just to piss you off because i'm one of you but i really like this phrase the first annual gamers tavern awards um yeah ross and i got together and poured over all the games that came out in 2013 and we picked our favorites now because of some technical difficulties i talked about at the beginning of the episode i don't know if that's going to be next week or the week after that we're going to air the awards but that award show is going to go up and we're going to talk about our favorites from last year as a retrospective um so yeah uh, my con schedule is still really really in flux right now but ross is going to be at chupacabra con in austin texas this weekend so if you're listening to this podcast live when it airs if you're in central texas go there if you're not in central texas hurry up if you're listening to it late um keep listening to future episodes and see where we're going to show up again or you can just wait until february 13th through 16th where ross will be in genghis khan in aurora colorado which is just outside denver um he is running a crap load of games including many many sessions of accursed i looked at this guy's schedule i don't know how he does it maybe it's because he doesn't drink that might have something to do with it but uh yeah definitely show up to these cons you can find out more about chupacabra con at chupacabracon.com and you can find out more about genghis con at denvergamers.org both of these links are in our show notes as well as many of the links from the rest of the podcast now if you would like us to read your comment on air please leave us a comment at our website at gamerstavern.org visit our facebook page at facebook.com slash gamers tavern or you can find us on twitter at gamers tavern pc as in podcast and rate us on itunes and we will definitely read your comments on air and that pretty much wraps us up for this week at the gamers tavern the gamers tavern is released under a creative commons non-commercial no derivatives 3.0 license the accursed theme is artemis by asmadeva licensed under creative commons attribution license tavern brawl is copyright 2013 by save or die all rights reserved thank you for listening and until next time gamers the tavern is closed Hello gamers, I'm Daryl Mott Jr. from Anacool News Tabletop and the Gamers Tavern Podcast, which you probably know because I'm betting I was just talking a second ago. I'm sure you already know about DriveThruRPG as it is the biggest repository for digital copies of your favorite games. Dungeons and Dragons, Shadowrun, Battletech, World of Darkness, Numenera, Fate, and so many more. 
And sometimes there are pennies on the dollar because, face it, PDFs can sometimes be so much more convenient than print copies, but if you need print copies, they sell those too. So if you want to support the Gamers Tavern podcast, click on the affiliate links in the show notes and check out Drive Through RPG. 